0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Vanessa Onwamesi, who is a writer and poet based in London. Vanessa completed an MA in creative writing at the University of Birkbeck back in 2018, while the following year her story at the Heart of Things won the White Review Short Story Prize. Her work has also appeared in Prototype magazine, Freeze, and the Literary Consultancy. Her debut short story collection. Dark Neighbourhood is published in October by Fitzcarraldo Editions. Vanessa, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much. Now, the first thing I was going to ask is that we're talking here quite soon to the publication of your book. It's that countdown. Is it a mixture of excitement and nervousness before the the world gets to read your stories?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I have an excitement for all the events and stuff around the book and excitement for being able to meet people again hopefully like meet new people and and what kinds of people I don't know uh, this book might bring to me that I find that the thought of that really exciting and then yeah and then just kind of gladness I think is maybe the word about the book being published on the 6th of October kind of just gladness that they'll be released and no longer kind of in just in my mind, I suppose.
0: Because I was wondering that when you, particularly when you have like a collection of stories, that how long, as you say, how long have you held on to them, as it were? Because because all of them won't have come at once. So you, I'm guessing you would have been working on them over a period of time to now get to this position where you are able to share them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think some of them have been held on to more uh, longer than others. So... The title piece, Dark Neighborhood is probably the in terms of its life in I suppose life in my mind is probably the oldest one because it was the first one I conceived. it was the last one that actually got written. It was the last one to be finished. And then some of them like went from conception to page relatively quickly. I think I got better at it as I learned to write. So the towards the end of last year I was writing faster than I was the
0: beginning i have a slight probably a slight affection for dark neighborhood just because glasgow gets a name check in and, <laughs> and then... <laughs> oh yeah it does although it, actually it's funny because it kind of made me laugh because the the line where you're kind of talking about somebody says they've been to sorrow and you then the, the other character thinks are you mistaken is it somewhat were you just feeling sad was it raining No. <laughs> you <been> in glasgow <laughs> i really yeah. like i loved that
1: yeah and I do really like Glasgow, actually. I mean, actually, I was talking to a friend, to some friends about Glasgow, and we all decided last night over some drinks to move there. So <laughs> I'll be coming, I'll be coming up, apparently. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that uh, when you mentioned Glasgow earlier. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, it's been a bit of a wing and a prayer, I suppose, in terms of getting the collection together I think you might agree that there's a kind of shared tone amongst the stories but there's no theme I was working to as such so you're kind of working towards gathering them all together but not really sure how that's going to happen
0: because one of the things that I you know that way anytime if you read short story collections and for me the, the strength of them always is you know that way afterwards if you're still because you're kind of you bring me as a reader into a certain part of somebody's life in the story, and then you, then we leave the story before you know things happen afterwards. But it's the fact that it then ticks over in your head. So you start to wonder about the characters, what happened. So that happened when I was reading your stories, because the one, again, for just for the title, which I loved, was Heartbreak at the Super 8. I loved yeah. that title, just simply because I've stayed at Super 8 when I've been in the, in the States. So uh, okay, yeah. But that, that's like almost something I thought... I've either seen it or I could see that in a, as a film because it was so, everything about that, the characters and the story and their interaction. And and then, as I say, it leaves you afterwards thinking, what happens to those two characters? I, I thought it was really, I loved that story, you know, oh, a, amongst you. the others. so Thank you, yeah. My friend actually
1: suggested the title for that story, so I'll tell him that you loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually the filmic filmicness of them, I've been told about before. A few people who have read it have said that. And that's something that hadn't really occurred to me while writing them. But I think, like, on reflection, I think that the image is really important to me. Like, I do, I don't necessarily think in images, but something similar to that, where I'm quite focused on describing the scene or, or rather that the reader experiences the scene. Via the words, so I, I want to give the reader the experience of what's happening rather than explaining to them what's happening. That yeah makes sense.
0: Because the other thing I, I really like is you know that say sometimes when you're reading it, you're being challenged when you're, when you're reading. And yeah. you know, for example, like the the story growing state. Yeah, so
1: yeah. I
0: kind of got to the end of that and then went back and read it again. I mean, I loved reading it the first time, but I, I found even going back and reading it again the second time because you kind of immersed in the story and then you kind of it slowly unravels as to what, or you slowly reveal what, what it is that you're reading and you think, that's so clever. And then you go back and, and I like being challenged that way that you're kind of maybe forcing people to think a wee bit more about what you're saying in terms of, as you say, the language and the imagery. And I think that works really well.
1: Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's really heartening to hear that, especially with that story. I think of all of them, that one probably went through the most redrafts. I had a real struggle in trying to set the right tone What's the thin line between gobbledygook and kind of and something that holds together because it's in within. It's also set within such a confined space and within a confined unit of time that I was in that story. I was looking for ways to stretch time so that what happened in the story could happen without it being very dull that makes sense like, yeah so as a writer actually I'd say of they all present their own challenges but it is much easier to write something which happens in a kind of something reflecting real time where people you know do things and they go places and stuff like that whereas condensing everything I didn't realize this was the challenge when I started writing it but as often happens as soon as you're halfway through you're like oh actually this is really hard I don't know how to do this it's a learning process as a writer I suppose but yeah that was the challenge of that story and yeah I mean I I tried and we'll see the the reader is the judge really.
0: <laughs> yeah because that is interesting you say that, that that again strikes me when you're when you're reading stories like that that when you say that that one goes through so many different rewrites and, and edits and because every word in a short story is absolutely vital because you've, you've only got a finite amount of words that you want to use. Yeah. And so, as you say, in order, it may just be one sentence, but that's that could be the crucial sentence that takes the reader and lets them know what it is that you're, you're wanting to say. So I, I can yeah. understand why, I suppose, you get the idea for the story, but then it's the working and the reworking and the reworking until you get to the stage where you think, right, I think I've got it.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, you're trying to, uh, I find often the first draft, as you say about being economical with words, the first draft is often a bit flabby, like you spend a lot of time cutting things out. With this one, with the growing state, I felt like um, actually the draft that I ended up with, I felt like I cut too much out. And it was just, there was just uh, a little bit too little to go on in order to, for the mind to build a picture of what's going on, on the first and second read. So I actually went back to it and put some words in, and to, fi- to help it find a balance. And I find often that a way I tend to work is like uh, either going too far one way, kind of going a bit too far into the abstract, and then pulling it back, and then kind of seesawing like that. And in the end, I tend to find my way to a balance of the right, Kind of the right tone or not, but I mean, like the failures teach you something anyway. So, yeah, I'm glad
0: you enjoyed it. Because the other thing I was, because I'm, I'm always curious, particularly when people uh, are putting together a short story collection, is it something similar to, for example, if like musicians are putting together an album, they come together with a collection of, in your case, stories, and you then have to pick the ones that, that you think will make it onto the, the collection, or is it the other way around that you just you're building with each one and, and t- until you get a body of work that you're happy with
1: I think it's a bit of both I think you're right I, I think I'd written maybe three of the stories that are in this collection and at that point I kind of knew I was writing a collection before that I was just writing the stories but then I had suddenly I had a, a bit of a picture of the road ahead of me and I knew that I would have at least another three or four stories and, and that would make a collection. I could kind of see it. I mean, I have lots of other stories that, uh, yeah, there were one or two where I considered putting them in but felt that they weren't right for this collection, so left them out. So, yeah, I think it is a bit of both. And I imagine that different writers write different ways. I'm not that fast a writer. Like, I don't produce lots and lots and lots of work and lots of words then cut things down I tend to work from the much more from the ground up if that makes sense so yeah like I I think up past a certain point I had an idea of how long this collection would be I kind of had a feel for it and I worked towards that and then stopped when I'd got there basically
0: well no, no doubt in the course of the podcast we'll have a chat more about your writing but what I like to do with everyone is take you on your literary journey of your life and take you back yeah. So, starting off in childhood and asking you to choose a a favourite book from childhood. And the book that you've chosen is a book called Crick Crack, a collection of West Indian stories by Grace Hallworth, or Hallworth, sorry. And what is it about that book that has stayed with you? Well, me and my brother have a younger brother. And we, to this
1: day, we really joke about how much those stories terrified us as children. My mum used to read them to us. She still has the book actually at home. And yeah, it has some quite spooky, kind of folkloric uh, West Indian stories, basically, for children. Actually, a lot of it, um, which I found out more recently, is that a lot of those stories originated in places like Ghana and uh, uh, Niger and Nigeria and West Africa. And they were obviously taken to the Caribbean with slaves and a are kind of morphed. So there are different versions of these stories still in uh, places like Ghana, but also in Trinidad, in, in Jamaica. I'm not sure about Cuba, but I'm sure there are versions of them cropping up as well.
0: Because I always think that the best children's books or the best children's stories are the ones to, to what you were saying. That aren't saccharine and sweet, but are a bit slightly edgy and yeah. slightly scary. That's the thing that appeals to children, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that like most folk tales in their original forms, as you say, like a lot of the stories that were made very saccharine by Disney say, if you go and look at them originally, they're actually very dark and somewhat disturbing. And actually children can handle that, like they can handle a lot more. Of that and they tend to approach well I mean there is fear but there's also curiosity and I kind of remember being a bit also a bit obsessed with the book like the book also has illustrations in it which are kind of terrifying like there's this one story where which I think is the main one that was particularly scary where a man finds a child alone in in the bush like in the the forest on his while he's walking home and the child speaks it's actually a baby in at least in the illustration it's a baby and the baby says don't pick me up uh, or something like that and he picks up the baby and then me and my brother were like did were you not warned by the fact the baby's talking to you (laughs) um and uh there's a kind of rhyme it says something like don't bury me don't drown me just put me back where you found me kind of thing and as the man walks along, the man ignores what he hears and says, no, I've got to take this child home to my wife because it's alone in the forest. And then the baby like, wraps his, his hands around his neck. And the closer he gets to home, the tighter the baby squeezes until he can't breathe. So then his, he and his wife have to run back and find the spot um, when he found the baby before the, the baby strangles him to death, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's not like bedtime
0: reading. <laughs> yeah, were you, were you, were you and your brother going to sleep with nightmares
1: then? Yeah, like there was no sleeping after that story. <laughs> so, yeah, like when you when your questions came, I immediately thought of that one just because we've never forgot it.
0: <laughs> yeah, do you know the the sad, well, the kind of poignant thing is when I was because I, I wasn't familiar with the book, so I was just doing a wee bit of research on it, and Grace Hallworth. You know, we're, we're, I think it's the 20th of August we're recording this. She only passed away 10 days ago. Really? Wow. Yeah, she, at the age of 93, I think she'd latterly stayed in a, in a care home. So she only actually died very, very recently. Wow. Um. So I think yes. she was quite a well-known, Brilliant. obviously, children's author, storyteller, but I think as a librarian as well, I think that's what she trained as. And I think that was, you know, she'd spent her life promoting children's books and, and as a library. So I, I was quite I kind of... Quite sad, actually, when you, I suppose, a life well lived, I suppose, in 1893.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure she did. Yeah, I'd never actually looked up the author before. It's a yeah, but like her books were definitely part of the backdrop to my childhood. Like there are other stories in there as well. Like actually one of the main characters that features in a few stories in the book is. character called Anansi and that is um, I think that this particular character does originate from West Africa and Ghana and Anansi appears sometimes as a man and sometimes as a spider and I also remember being kind of confounded by that by that issue like is he a man is he a spider as a child but you kind of just go with it also also in the illustration sometimes he's depicted as a man but kind of crouching like uh with very long limbs kind of spider-like and sometimes it's just a spider I've also found that quite that's definitely something that I don't know maybe it's a kind of enchantment that's missing in most books you read as an adult
0: perhaps because the other thing that always strikes me particularly with the the book in that category is quite often when people are choosing the book it's the memory is of that shared experience of as you say your mum reading to you and your brother and it's You know, it's the love of the book, but it's also that memory of of something that you you were sharing and and that love of reading is getting passed on to you simply by telling those stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also having them read to you, like reading out loud. It's one period of life where that's quite normal, I guess. Like you, uh, nowadays, like like you don't read books as a three. You know, you don't really share. uh, Like after childhood, it's where that you share the experience of, reading in that way isn't it there's a particular quality to kind of childhood reading which I think a lot like kind of stands the test of time for a lot of people it's a very particular period I think
0: well if I can then take you on from that childhood book and then go to kind of more teenage student formative years book and Mm -hmm. the one that you've chosen in this category is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. and again what is it about that book that's been the one that you've chosen for this category?
1: I think that that was definitely a book which sparked something literary in me like it was a book that I actually didn't spend a lot of time reading in those formative years I was at university so from the age of about 18 I think I read Orlando when I was 23 but while I was at university I don't remember reading that much literature so when I Found this book. It was in a charity shop. It was just one of those times where the right book finds you. Like it was the perfect book for me to read at that point, because of how Virginia Woolf is really good at kind of elucidating the kind of complexity of psychology. Like a the way, like she really is good at writing the way the way someone feels. There's a really great passage in it which she talks about how. And I'm going to paraphrase it, like if there are 75 selves locked up within you and then you say, you call to one of them, so you say out loud, Orlando, I'm sick to death of this self, I think it says. Um, I'm sick to death of this self. I want another. But the self that you're looking for at the right moment never arrives. You know, the self that you need yourself to be at the right moment it's a kind of anguish, like really expresses an anguish, I think, that perhaps a lot of people, or at any age, but I think especially the age where, at that time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. And um, I was always feeling like I was a bit out of step with uh, everything around me. So yeah, and and it really captured that. I mean, I haven't reread it since, I wonder what I think of it now. But it really captured something. Uh, it captured a lot of the depth of feeling I had at that time. And actually, I didn't really realise that books could do that, that before then. I don't think I'd really, uh, I got out, out of the habit of reading as I did as a teenager. So those intervening years were kind of, yeah, spent not knowing that. And then it kind of really arrived upon me on reading that
0: book. What, what had you been studying at university?
1: Uh, biology. So yeah, I I think reading literature. I mean, I did other things actually. I, I was more into music. I think at that point, so I listened to much more music and went out and listened to live music and stuff like that. That was more what I did recreationally than uh, reading. Uh, and obviously, the kind of course work I did on my course pushed out a lot of time for for reading as well.
0: Because I was what I was curious. You know, when you're in that charity shop and what was it about that book that piqued your interest to the point where you buy the book and you read it and then become totally immersed in it?
1: I had no idea. You know, I, I wish I, I think I did write a diary at that point and I should go back and look. But I actually bought two books that day. I bought Orlando and I think maybe I'd heard the name Virginia Woolf before. I think that must have been it. I think I thought oh, I've heard of her. I'll get that and I'd actually gone into that charity shop looking for clothes like I'd heard of the and and then I just discovered that there was a bookshop in the back and hung around in there for a while so I bought that and then I also bought a girl of a dragon tattoo so I was like oh I've heard of this too and I still haven't read that (laughs) (laughs) but I read Orlando and yeah it's really strange isn't it apart from knowing the name of Virginia Woolf there was no other reason, really, for me to buy the book. Like, uh, I could have picked up anything else.
0: I suppose sometimes it's that you mentioned it, because I suppose that's serendipity. It's the right book at the right time for you, and for reasons that you'll never, ever be able to figure out. It just it, it came into your life at that right time. And and maybe, as you said, it might be curious to read it now to see the reaction, but then would it be part of you that maybe wouldn't want to, because of what the reaction you had at the time? It would change, because obviously you're a different person now from when you read it originally.
1: Yeah, I think that's why I haven't really gone back to read it. I mean, I've recently bought a few of Virginia Woolf's other novels and I intend to read those. But yeah, I it was just so, um, yeah, like felt so complete. Like I finished that book and I feel like in some way its effect on my life was so complete and it did what it was there to do that I haven't really felt the urge to go back to it either. And there's also, I suppose... I guess it's a spoiler alert, but the fact that Orlando is kind of shape-shifting, it also, I guess, awakened me to a way of writing, perhaps, or things you can do with writing that I hadn't seen done before.
0: Did it also kind of trigger that sort of reintroduction, a love again of reading from that? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I read a lot after that, like quite quickly. So there was quite a big burst of, I guess, creativity back into my life through literature so yeah I read Kafka quite soon after that I read The Trial for the first time what else did I read I read Iris Murdoch Under the Net uh yeah I read uh, I read Nabokov as well yeah they're like in very quick succession in those years I was reading a lot again
0: so you've got you've got a lot to thank Virginia Woolf for
1: yeah I really do
0: Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddehy, and my guest today is the writer, Vanessa Onwumese. And Vanessa, we're on to your third book choice. And that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book you have chosen is a book called The Book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa. This is a book actually that somebody
1: gave me a few years ago. And it's the kind of book where you don't, I guess you can read it any way you want. It's made up of vignettes. So it's like lots of short passages that are all narrated by the same character, a kind of melancholic character who kind of has a very, you might say, normal and mundane life um, working in an office. In Lisbon, this is. um, and, And you can read it any way you want. I think perhaps that's why I recommend it to people. You can read it front to back like a novel, but I tend to dip in and out of it. I'll just open it at any page and I don't mind if I'm rereading something like I'm rereading a passage I've read before because it's the kind of thing that just yields something new. As you say when we're talking about Virginia Woolf I don't know necessarily how I feel about it if I read it now and I think that has that a similar quality but the book lends itself to that like it lends itself to rereading from different angles at different times of day and at different points in your life and stuff like that so it doesn't necessarily need to be read like
0: other books I was curious actually with this book and then also you kind of mentioned it when you were talking about Virginia Woolf obviously anything that people read it shapes how they they are as a writer and was this another book which kind of gives you the confidence or or not permission obviously because you can write what you like but that confidence to think well you can actually you write the way you feel the way you want as opposed to there's certain rules and structures that you need to you need to follow. And does that help you in terms of your writing? Because you can read a book like that, as you say, that you can dip into it at any point, or you can read it back to front, or you can you can do things with it that maybe people aren't aren't aware that you can do in terms of your writing.
1: Yeah, I think I have definitely read this book with a view to, I suppose, imitating it in certain ways. Like it has a really lovely rhythm to the sentences, which is really appealing. They're all very meditative. And yeah, in terms of structure, like I I haven't written a novel yet, but in terms of structuring a book, it is still pretty unique. Like you can call it a novel and I'm sure it's sold as a novel, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily have a particular linear narrative. And yeah, I think reading books like this and Virginia Woolf, and definitely Kafka, and other books like that do kind of break down your prejudices, perhaps, that you might have, especially when you're first starting out writing, as to what's allowed, I suppose, what's allowed and what's not allowed to happen um, on the page.
0: So, in terms of your own writing, did that, given that uh, reading Orlando kind of kickstarted you back into reading, was mm-hmm. it at some point after that, did you? get this the the feeling that you wanted to put your own thoughts down on on paper or on a a laptop or had you been writing before that
1: so I hadn't been writing before that and yeah I, I would definitely trace the impulse to write back to Orlando I would definitely say there was a kind of light bulb that went on at that point although I don't think I knew it at that point but looking back I would definitely trace a lot of it back to that moment and it was maybe a few years later it's about two years later I actually put pen to paper literally it was a I didn't write on my laptop at that point but yeah it was definitely a it's nice because uh, it happened of its own accord like it that something switched on and then now looking back it it feels kind of inevitable it didn't feel like a, a huge leap going from that to doing lots of reading then Deciding to write my own story, like a, uh, try to write a story
0: at least. Because I'm always curious because I think, because obviously a lot of people would like or feel that like they would like to write, but it's it's taking that step from thinking you'd like to write to actually writing. But then mm-hmm. I suppose the next step, which is the one where it takes that bit of courage of then you have to show maybe you're writing to maybe somebody you know, just to, because even if you're thinking I might be onto something here, I, I think this might be something I can do. I suppose you, at some point you then have to share that and to see what yeah. the reaction, which is probably pretty nerve-wracking, I think, for anyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's also nerve-wracking for the people who, because I did share, I, I wrote a story and shared it with some friends, like some very trusted friends. And it's nerve-wracking for them as well because they want it to be good. <laughs> like, it's, it, and I understand, like, it's worse if you think it's terrible and you don't know how to tell your, you don't know how to tell your friends. So my friend did admit to me that she was absolutely terrified (laughs) to read it. So, um, but yeah, after sharing it the one time and getting some good feedback, yeah, it, it emboldens you to do it again. But I mean, it is still like now having a book coming out, at least at the moment, I'm not too nervous about, what people think of it, I think you get more used to letting something else be your guide, I think uh, well, in part, actually people have already read it, so that's one thing. like it, you know it went through an editor, so it's already been read, and you have the validation, I suppose, of somebody wanting to publish it. But I do think there is something else in that. you have once you know that you can write a story from beginning to end, and you know you know that technically. You can write. Your guide is really is a story, is it itself? Like, has it become itself? I suppose. Like, you feel like each story has to be kind of realized in its own form rather than whether it's liked or not. That is kind of secondary.
0: Because the other one of the other stories in your collection, which again, it kind of leaves a real impact on you, is the story Cuba, which again, I love oh, just yeah. as a, a really yeah. simple title. I just, because it's cute, you're curious immediately why, but I think it's it's a really impactful story. And again, it's another one where you kind of get to the end of it and then you can flick back through it just to to get more out of it. I, again I'm always curious of where, suppose, where these the germs of these ideas come from. And then you, you shape it into something that has an impact on on readers that you don't know.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, it fascinates me as well because like the thought of it being just a kernel of something in your own mind. And and at that point. It could so easily not happen at all. You know what I mean? It could so easily not come into being, and you wonder what makes the difference between it being just a kind of vision in your head to then being real in someone else's mind. If that makes sense, the yeah. like the kind of form of the story, like the actual writing on the page, is like the mediator between whatever it was in me that had to get it down to whatever the reader conjures up in their own mind, and you kind of co-create it together. And so the object, the book, it's it's important, obviously, but it's the mediator between that. Within that process, the book, just one way of connecting, I suppose. And yeah, like it it still kind of astounds me that it, it was in my mind, and then it was something written at my kitchen table. And again, like it doesn't seem serious when it's just on your own laptop and you know nobody's really paying attention but you doesn't seem serious and then all all of a sudden it's published online perhaps and then it's in a book and suddenly it seems very serious and you don't really know how to explain how it got there
0: because <laughs> the thing I always feel that you know obviously there's a nervous, slight nervousness and excitement when the book comes out I think the majority of people I just feel the majority of people are, are, are positive because you're doing something that maybe a lot of people would aspire to do, but you've you've kind of taken that step and actually, you've actually done it. People will have different reactions to it. But I think by and large, I always like to think that people will react positively to something that, because you're actually, you've done something, you've achieved something, there's something tangible there that say many other people might like to have done it, but you've actually taken that next step.
1: Yeah, I think people are generally very very positive and generous and I wouldn't say it's a surprise I think you know people generally do want good things for other people and and also I think if they have something nice to say they tell me and it's really great and if it doesn't connect with them or they don't connect with it like that's perfectly okay as well and they can you know put it in a pile or give it away or whatever so yeah I agree with that. Absolutely. Like generally, it's really positive. You know, there is a place for criticism, as in like critique. There is a place for um, it being pointed out where something doesn't quite land or, you know, I I think writers are always looking for that as well. Like honest critique, I suppose, because you want to do better next time.
0: The other thing I was curious as a writer, because, I, you know, I said to you before, as a, as a reader, particularly with short stories, that you you dip in and out of somebody's life and then the best short stories are the ones that afterwards you're still thinking about what happened to them. Do you do that as a writer? Because obviously you've told that part of the story. Is there still part of you going, I wonder
1: what does happen next? I don't know. Like, I think I need time to approach the stories as a reader now. I think some of the earlier ones I wrote, for example, At the Heart of Things... It took me a really long time to, uh, after finishing it, to then start thinking about it as a, as a reader. Like, I think when you're very much inside it and you're writing it, and I'm, I'm really, really concerned with the nuts and bolts. Like, I'm really concerned about whether I've used the right word or whether a sentence is in the right place. And I use a lot of gaps in the text, and I'm really, like, <laughs> obsessive over the length of the gap and whether it's the right length kind of thing so all of that stuff when I am the writer in that role takes precedent and I and that's more what I'm thinking about and it's it takes a while it takes a bit of a break for me to forget all of that and then just look at it as a reader but then when I do yeah I do wonder those same things but I don't know either like the story ends for me where it ends for the reader as well like there's nothing I'm holding back in that sense
0: uh, I like that actually. The fact that you ultimately you have the same experience as us, even if even if you are the creator.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think that everything I have I'll put on the page, if that makes sense. I'll I'll try and put it down as faithfully as I've got it. And I don't I wouldn't um I don't hold back deliberately in that sense. Obviously, I've been told a lot that the stories are very ambiguous and very yes, they do end with you not knowing everything, but Kind of paradoxically, I've I've given everything I do know to the story.
0: I should say, in terms of the books to recommend, you did you did give me another uh, choice as well. And and, 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 (laughs) well, to be fair, there are actually no rules, so if you you could have have chosen as many books as you wanted. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, for the next guest, they should they hear this? You can choose anything. Yeah, I'll
0: get a library worth of (laughs) Um, (laughs) selection. The other one you chose was Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and what was it about that book that again has as one that you would recommend to anyone?
1: It's just so well written I mean it's just so such an excellent story and an excellent piece of historical writing and also a, it's of course about a period in history that has much to do with Britain and it's much to do with the UK but at, wouldn't appear to reader at first as a story that has anything to do with where we are in the UK. But uh, like the primary aspect of why I'd recommend it to people is just because it's brilliant writing. And I learned a lot about that period of history from that book. Although I am Nigerian, and, you know, my dad was born in Nigeria. There's still a lot of mystery, I suppose, about that period of history in Nigeria. And she's just unearthed it so well, uh, you know, and I haven't actually I wish I had before we spoke, read more interviews and things like that about her process of writing it and why she decided to write it. But I do think uh, I'd heard her say that it was a lack of writing about this particular period. And I suppose right uh, the lack of the lens that through which she told it um, was her reason for writing it.
0: I always think that the best historical fiction does the job of what I... Sometimes better, as you touched upon, than sometimes reading a non-fiction book, that because it's actually... You get immersed in the story and the characters and you're learning the story and the history of it, but in a a much more real way, rather than reading something that's just the facts and figures and that sort of narrative. And I think when it works in historical fiction, and obviously the, the, the awards that that book got, that would yeah. you know, and you say the quality of the writing, then it, it does more than just tell the story because as you say, you you come away and any reader comes away having learned something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I yeah, I, I do feel like everyone I know who's read it has come away with that. Like it was just a really yeah, like I, I admire great writing. So that one, I, I just can't see anyone who, although it's not a pleasant book, I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't appreciate having had that bit of knowledge of this part of the world and and I can't imagine anyone not agreeing with me (laughs) although maybe someone might but I can't imagine anyone not agreeing with me that it's just also an excellent story
0: that she's told and I suppose uh, you know as a writer as well you're always you know when you when you're reading something especially if it's something that's written so well you that that kind of it's like a benchmark almost that you're thinking that's what you aspire to to be able to to write to that, that level, that quality, and that level of engagement with, with readers as well?
1: Yeah, I think especially as a novel, the way that fact and fiction, like the the way that the factual elements have been balanced with the story, like structurally. and I mean, you don't notice the structure because that's how immersed you get into it. But if I were ever writing a novel like that well I think anyone who writes historical fiction I think it's a great model for how to get the balance right and how to yeah just how to weave in the telling of I suppose weave in the telling of a period of history without kind of shoving um, historical facts down people's throats and yeah just generally carrying a story over that length of pages is something I haven't yet done so I'll probably look, be looking back, whether I'm writing historical fiction or not, looking back at how she did it and yeah. seeing if I can kind of uncover how it's done. Yeah, just a really great piece of
0: writing. Now that is obviously that's another book that you would recommend to anyone. Yes. The other side of that coin, of course, is what the book that I couldn't pay you to read again. And <laughs> the book that you've chosen is one that has sold uh, over 125 million <laughs> copies worldwide. <laughs> fastest selling paperback in UK history. It's Fifty Shades of Grey by (laughs) E.L. James. Can I tell you you're not the first person to have chosen this book in that category? (laughs) Um, I mean it was the
1: first one that came to mind. Like it's really difficult to, it's a really difficult category because although something, you haven't liked something, I don't know, you don't, you don't want to kind of spit on other writers I guess. But I feel like this one, I mean, it's so successful that she's not going to notice so <laughs> and also it's true. like I think I got actually, if I don't like a book, I rarely finish it. like if I've gotten to the end of a book, I will probably read it again if that makes sense. Yeah. So you w- couldn't pay me to read the first hundred pages I think that's where <laughs> I got to <laughs> again, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I mean like I, get, I think it goes about saying. that it's not I think I appreciate really good writing I think after speaking about half of the yellow sun and this is one where the writing just isn't good and I don't think there's any other payoff for me in the book to make me overlook it so yeah that's why I'd picked that one
0: because I think the thing in in this category as well quite often people as you said are quite reluctant sometimes to pick a specific book generally people who have been quite vociferous about books if it hasn't been something like this it's been the author's dead so that they, they're not going to offend them but it, it's such a subjective thing and and I think you like a, a lot of people and I'm kind of the same is that I don't really have a visceral rea- reaction against books because if I'm not enjoying it I don't finish it I'll maybe go back and try two or three times and then if it's not yes. for me it's just not for me so I don't I'm not left with that lasting negative impression the way I am with a lasting positive impression with a book that I have finished
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and I usually go on recommendations. I don't usually go buy books based on what's popular. So it is like relatively rare that I'll be reading something that I really can't stomach. And as we say, if I am really not into it, I will just stop reading it. But sometimes, like often I can, even if a, a book isn't for me, but I can see that it's a really brilliant writing and I can see why someone recommended it to me. It's just not speaking to me at the moment. I'll put it down and I'll go back to it in a year. As you say, you try again a couple of times and sometimes things just catch you at the right time. So I don't usually give up on things immediately if I can see that it is uh, objectively a good piece of writing. So there are lo- lots of things like that. But like I, re- I remember seeing a production of happy days once, Samuel Beckett, happy days. And it something had happened like maybe the week before, which meant that I somehow just understood it in a way that I knew that I wouldn't have if I hadn't, if certain events in my life hadn't occurred a few days earlier. I just knew that there was something that I understood about it because of the way I was feeling. And I do believe that Like there is that with a lot of books, like it is subjective, but you are a different person days and years down the line. But yeah, like if something, I I think for me, if the writing is not good quality, then I think I can safely put it to bed and say, okay. It's not for you. Charity shop. Yeah. I think (laughs) mate. yeah, maybe that's where Fifty Shades of Grey ended up. Maybe that was where my copy ended up.
0: (laughs) Because the other thing was, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about uh, when you read Orlando and it was maybe just at that specific or that particular time in your life it really resonated with you and maybe if you'd read it yes, yeah. a year before or maybe a year later it wouldn't have had the same profound impact that it did.
1: Yeah I think so I, I guess it's like what we were um, when we were talking about my stories and how you know getting them out into the world and how you kind of you, the writer and the reader co-create something and I think that's true of a reader finding a a work at a particular time where if you find it the right time like what's created in your mind I suppose in your psyche is something something different to I suppose what what might have happened a year before like it is actually the book is a different book every time you pick it up actually and you create it while reading it it's not a passive enterprise as such and I think the fact that books won't speak to you one year and they, then they do two years later is kind of testament to that that is what is actually happening when you're reading
0: we're now on to the last of the questions and the categories and that is either yeah. the last book that you've read or the book that you're currently reading and you've given me two one that is a book that <laughs> like you, you you so constantly yeah. read uh, but the first one that you had mentioned in this category is a book by Olga Tokerchuk called Flights yeah.
1: Yes, so I'm reading that now. Actually, so that's published by Fitzcarraldo Edition. Uh, It was published by them, I think, before Olga won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And it's a book about. Again, it's uh, structurally interesting because it's made up of lots of very short stories. And I'm just at the just about the third of the way through now. I'm not reading it like I read say the book of disquiet actually I'm reading it from front to back just because I don't know that's what I've decided to do and yeah it's really great it is I suppose a kind of it's based in travel all the stories are really grounded in the idea of transition and the idea of being in between places and traveling from one place to the next and I suppose it's perhaps a kind of neglected part of human existence. Maybe it's a part that we don't really focus on. We focus on the getting to or the being at, like arriving at destinations. Because of that, a lot of the stories have a, a kind of ambiguity, I suppose. As you were saying, it's definitely one where you're wondering what happened to the character after the stories ended. And some of them are very, very short. But it's definitely one that leaves you wondering what happened and why did they do what they did.
0: And do you think as well, you know, if you're saying like travel and that idea of the journey itself, given the fact that we've maybe been our ability to travel and, and <laughs> been able to go on journeys has been curtailed over the last yeah. 18 months, whether it kind of maybe resonates more with you as well? Yeah, possibly,
1: because a lot of it takes place in airports, like a lot of it, there are a lot of maps in it as well, which I really like it definitely calls into question the way we've lived or the way we we live as human beings. I suppose that for for anyone reading it, that the questions will be different. But for me, perhaps it's made me think about whether I need to be doing all that. (laughs) I I think the opportunities there, like I could fly to X place for 50 pounds and I feel like I'm getting something from it. But I wonder what, what I think I'm getting, you know, an experience. I really like travelling. Personally, I really like going to other places. But I also, it's made me question what I, I, I'm i wanting from that and what, what I think I'm taking away once I leave the place. So, yeah, and I think it's no, again, this is just, a, it's a book I've wanted to read for a long time, actually. It's been on my mind for ages. It just so happens that I, ended up getting the book during the lockdown <laughs> so yeah so it's, in a way if, if there are no no mistakes in the universe it, it, it's perhaps I'm asking these questions at a time where I should be asking them maybe
0: and also it, it, it's worth saying that it's it's published by FitzGeraldo editions who are also going to be publishing your short story yes. collection as well because yeah. I, I quite like their the, the simplicity of the book covers as well
1: yeah and, it's I really They're really beautiful. eye-catching yeah, they, they really got that right. They're so recognisable now. And yeah, I suppose it, it means you focus more on what's in the book than on the cover. I mean, I, I still like book covers. But, um,
0: but I actually find, because yeah. you know, I, I do think sometimes you do judge a book by its cover. So that sometimes yeah, the cover I absolutely do. <laughs> but I actually think their, their book covers, they just pique your curiosity because you do pick them yeah. up because you want to know... Because it's, it's kind of very minimalist in a way, but you actually still you think you're really curious to find out what's within those pages then. Yeah, absolutely. So you read the blurb on the back, don't you? And to you,
1: you have a look inside at the quotes and then you're already engaging with the text by that yeah. point. You're not just looking at the cover.
0: The other book that you mentioned is one that you I think you said you, you're you constantly reading. It's a book called yes. Gravity and Grace by Simone Wheel.
1: Again, it's one, it's written in aphorisms. It's actually, it was not written as a book while she was alive. It was put together posthumously by her friend who edited it together from her notes and uh, essays she'd written. But I am always dipping in and out of it. It's a a spiritual book, basically. It's a a book about, I suppose, like the spiritual journey of a human being. Uh, At least that's what it's been fashioned into. And it's uh, separated into kind of chapters based on the focus of of the aphorisms. So you have one on love, you have one on time, chance, you have one on creation and, and all the rest of it. And the title comes from, I think, one of the first aphorisms where she says, I've actually got the book next to me here. Never far, she says, I think all natural movements of the soul are governed by laws analogous to physical gravity and grace is the only exception so that's where the title comes from what she's saying is there is a kind of like inbuilt necessity in the world where basically like things happen the way they happen you know uh lovers become jealous and people die and and all the all the things that i suppose like all the joys and sorrows of the world as we know them they happen and grace is the only anomaly it's like the only kind of redemptive force I suppose in the world but I think I wasn't like a lot of the book when I first came across it I didn't understand a word what she was saying but I think there's a particular poetry to what she's written which I find really appealing like I've always been a bit attracted to poetry Almost more so if I don't understand what it's saying, but it has a a really nice balance to the words, like rhythmically. If the, all the words feel in the right place to me, I'll be really attracted to it, and I'll I'll read it over and over again. And then eventually, something starts to sink in that is beyond the words. When poetry is really good, that's what it can do for you. Um, it kind of draws you in with a kind of I guess all, all the things that are common to poetry, are rhythm and a mystery and the mystery I find really attractive and I don't mind not understanding it
0: immediately. And is that also a book that, again, you can dip into and it gives you something depending on your mood as well or what's happening in, in yeah. your life? And and it's that is that why you keep going back to it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like the, sometimes, you know, it's always on the table, so... I'll just have a I'll open it, a random page and 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 read through it a little bit. I mean there was one time where i think I was having quite a bad day and i opened just flipped it open and and read the first sentence and suddenly I had this huge kind of epiphany and I mean that's only ever happened once I can't really i find when you're looking for it it doesn't happen but I had this huge kind of unlocking of my situation that was kind of sparked by a sentence in the book and I think that can happen with any book to be honest or you know something somebody says at the right time or whatever but um but yeah I do find it a really it's a really important book for me to have around.
0: Well sadly Vanessa we have just about come to the end of the podcast Uh, I have to say it's been a real joy uh, sitting talking to you about uh, some of your favourite and not so favourite books <laughs> and just to, to let people know, obviously the 6th of October is the date when uh, the world will just embrace short stories forever, Dark <laughs> Neighbourhood your collection is published by Fitzcarraldo Editions and uh, having read it, I tell people that the stories and the characters will, will stay with you uh, long after you finished reading the, the stories and, and I, I wish you nothing but success with with the collection Thank you so much. It's been yeah an absolute pleasure. I can't believe time's up already. <laughs> Time flies, as they say. It does. <laughs> yeah, but thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at About 20 on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cudahy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.